I think that also what the film for me was about is, and I think the realization that's articulated by Stephen is that they can't wait for the grownups to fix their problems, whether it's climate change or gun violence or consensus in, you know, finding the center that will hold in American life. They can't wait for, for us to fix it for them because we haven't, you know, in many cases we've just fucked it up. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is director Jesse Moss, who is the co-director with his wife Amanda McBain of Boy State, which comes out August 14th. It won the Sundance Grand Prize. It also sold for a record amount for an independent film. It's something very special about a thousand 17-year-old boys from Texas who joined together to build a representational government from the ground up. I had a similar reaction to this film to watching Hoop Dreams. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and I think it's going to kind of explode in our understanding of where this country is, what divides it, what can bring it together, and perhaps most importantly, the generation that's going to take the wheel sooner than later. Uh, What really drew me to Jesse Moss was he directed one of my favorite films um, ever, which was a documentary from 2000, his first film called Con Man, about James Hogue, who snuck into Princeton under false auspices and became a stellar student and an extraordinary cross-country runner. He went on to, to be profiled in a 2000 New Yorker article called The Runner by Dave Samuels, which I encourage you to read. But what really touched me about James Hogue and his story of running and academics and fraudulence and also excellence at the same time, legitimate excellence, was I think with running and boxing and probably writing (laughs) a lot of other areas, we think that we need truth to get places when I think that a lot of us use self-deception. And cross-country running, I was a pretty serious cross-country runner while boxing in the amateurs, um, you find the point at which you can't go further, where pain is overwhelming and you have to find thousands of ways to deceive yourself. Running a marathon is about millions of self-deceptions to just keep going, to keep that foot going in front of the other, to find eventually that after 26.2 miles you get there. And Hogue, I think it's similar, running against other people, it's projecting that you're not in as much pain as you are and trying to psychologically break other people. I think there's a lot of that sort of Bobby Fischer um, famous quote about the, the great home run of chess is, is to destroy other people's ego. And so his meditation on James Hogue offered a lot of sympathy and compassion and explored the illusion and delusion of places like Princeton and Ivy League educations projecting a meritocracy, which Hogue was out to expose that that hypocrisy. So this was this somebody I really wanted to talk to for a long time. It was a fun conversation. So I hope you enjoy Jesse Moss. I have not seen anywhere where when your film is going to be released exactly. It's going to be released in August uh, mm-hmm. on on, a, on, a, on the Apple platform. It, it depending on the state of the world, it 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 may have some theatrical 
release uh, through A24 uh, at the end of July, but that's TBD. Got it. Um, so I came to your work with Con Man, which is one of my all-time favorite documentaries. Oh, and, thank you. And James Hogue being this incredible character, but I thought maybe we could just start in a kind of linear fashion of your path to filmmaking is particularly intriguing. So I wonder, could we just... Where are you from, and, and how did you get to it? Yeah. Um, I, I I didn't study film, or uh, documentary was uh, not something I was immediately drawn to out of school. I actually wanted to go into politics, and I did go into politics right after college. I, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked in the Clinton White House, and then I worked on Capitol Hill, and I loved it. Uh, it was a great, great experience. And um, But I was, I think, unfulfilled um, and was looking for something else. And uh, if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but 1994 was a big year for documentary. In the theaters were two incredible movies. One was The War Room, um, about, of course, about politics, and then The Hoop Dreams. And I saw both in the theater, and I think I was floored. Um, that uh, documentary could could do that, um, you know, capture these present tense stories that were as big as anything else that Hollywood could throw at you. And um, I think that sparked something in me. And I, I remember I did two things. One is I, I went to a, a series. I think one of the museums of the Smithsonian had a documentary series where they brought filmmakers in to talk about their work. And I went to that series and saw some other films. I don't even remember what else I saw. And um the other thing is I, I took a, a class at a, a community access TV station in Washington, and it was about making films. And um, I think it was the first, like, hands-on filmmaking class. First hands-on filmmaking I'd done since I was 12, and I helped my older brother make Super 8 movies. So, um, and I think that was empowering. In a way, I made a short film, which isn't very good. It, it was about Lenny Bruce, um, and it was entirely text and titles and music. I scored it to a pavement song and I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I, I loved it. Um, and then one very serendipitous thing happened, which is I met a filmmaker from New York, a documentary filmmaker named Christine Choi, who had come to Washington to show uh, a great film called who killed Vincent Chin. And I saw that movie and I met Christine and I said to her impulsively, I'd love to come work for you. And she took me up on that offer. Actually, I did some research for her for a documentary while I was still in Washington. And it was about gun violence. And um, I sent her this. I, I think I stayed up all night doing this research project. And I sent her, faxed her like 20 pages of my research. And I think she was impressed. Um, and she said, um, well, if you come to New York, I'll give you a job. And I said, great, I'm going to come to New York. And she <laughs> gave me a job. So um, I, I, I packed up my shit. I put it in a U-Haul. I drove up to New York. Uh, I moved in with a friend of Chris's, Christine Choice, and started working for her in documentary. And I, you know what? I, I When I look back on that, that was 1996. Like, it seems like such an impulsive, almost irrational decision. I, I can't really fully make sense of it. But it was such a transformative moment. So. Well, and for you, I mean, I, I'm 40 years old. I'll be 41 next month. Um, I was 15 when Hoop Dreams came out, and mm -hmm. 
it was one of the most powerful impacts I think I've ever had from a film up to that point or since. I, I just didn't know that you could do filmmaking that would be able to lure you into the lives of these people and convey so much from there. So I just wonder if you could just speak a little more of, of what that film meant, what Steve James uh, and his fellow filmmaker achieved there for you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a touchstone um, for sure. In a way, I think actually the War Room was more powerful, a more mm. powerful draw for me because it was about politics. It was about an election that I had worked on. I actually had worked on the Bill Clinton campaign. That's why I ended up in the Clinton White House briefly. Mm. And and I was still, you know, was deeply in, immersed in the political world. But um, but that kind of that kind the same kind of filmmaking, I mean, just to be there, to be a witness to, um, you know, these incredible characters both in, in both of those films um and um i i, I mean they work sort of i mean so the war room like kind of an, an epic story but they found a way in and a very human way to tell that story and, and focusing on the, the consultants of course behind bill clinton and um it, the way it, i think it contained that story um i mean i think hoop dreams has obviously been extremely influential and Steve James's work, um, you know, he's has continued to inspire me. Um, as a, uh, I, I mean, I can think of many, many movies he made subsequently that that were just also incredible. Um, I think I, I just I sort of I think I found the War Room like it seemed more like something that not that I could do, but I, I don't know. I just I think I it felt closer to me, and and somehow that was a gateway, if you will, right? And whereas the, where mm. Hoop Dreams and Chicago and that world and the way that film was made was like not somehow seemed I inconceivable, um, I think. And um, so, um, but I think that kind of filmmaking, that was very important to me. And I, um, even though the film I mentioned by Christine Choi, Who Killed Vincent Shin, mm -hmm. is, is a kind of forensic examination of a past event, um, I, I think I was drawn to that, that verite approach. And even though that's not what I helped Christine with, I think that the next step that I was able to take in in documentary filmmaking was going to work for Barbara Koppel, who was is herself a great practitioner of that cinema verite form. And her work, I might have seen Harlan County, USA, when I was still living in Washington, or maybe I maybe I didn't see it until I moved up to New York. But but that film was like a thunderclap uh, as well, and and you could see kind of in the war room and in Hoop Dreams, like uh, the DNA of, of Harlan County, I think, and um, that mm -hmm. approach to storytelling and to, to find in nonfiction such complex characters and complex stories that would just grab you. And um, I, I certainly didn't know how you made that kind of work. And I, I was learning with Christine how you, you know, tear apart a story that already happened and how you find the archive and how you, you know, sort of how you knit it together in the edit room, but but not how you, you know, if you're if you're um, Penna Baker and Chris Hedges or or if you're Steve James, how you get in the room and find those characters who let you in and make those kinds of movies. I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. And, and Barbara Koppel is another favorite of mine. I think around the time of Hoop Dreams, she made a documentary about Mike Tyson called Fallen Champ: The Untold Story, and for my 15-year-old brain, it was just so interesting that she allowed so many different viewpoints, often very contradictory, um, 
and left a lot to the audience to make up their mind about a, sub, a subject who, I mean, the, the centerpiece of, of that documentary is that Tyson is in prison for rape at the time that she's making it. It was just really, really interesting and nuanced what she was able to do and, and in her subsequent work as well, of course. Oh, I agree. That's a very, very strong film. Um, and um, probably uh, it would be interesting to revisit it now. But but I agree. In her, in her body of work, which is enormous, that, that film definitely stands out. It, it is a very, very good film. Um, and, you know, for when I met, so I worked for Chris for a little while and thought about going to film school. And Chris, Chris was uh, actually the chair of the graduate film program at NYU at the time. And she, I think, she was looking for more students who were interested in documentary because it's such a narrative program. And I, and so I really strongly considered NYU. And in fact, I applied and I'm sure with Chris's help got in. And at this, right at the same time, I got an opportunity to work for Barbara um, through my friend, Brett Morgan, who was in, also, he was interning for Barbara at the time and he made an introduction and Barbara was starting some new projects and also kind of in transition as a filmmaker, I think it was, it was a challenging time for, for documentarians. And, um, and Barbara was, I think she was just going to start a new project and, but she didn't have a big staff or anything. And, and so through that introduction from Brett, I met Barbara and she said, yeah, you can come work for me. And I, I was looking at a choice of going to NYU graduate film or, or going to work for Barbara. And I thought I'm going to, you know, it was going to cost a lot of money to go to NYU. And uh, I wasn't super interested in narrative filmmaking, scripted filmmaking. And, and I thought, I'm going to go work for Barbara. I mean, here's a chance to work. Chris is a master in her own right. and But uh, but here's the practitioner of this form that I'm really interested in uh, and a, a, a great another great filmmaker. And so I, I just, again, another impulsive, uh, not so rational choice maybe, but to go to work for maybe rational to not take on a huge amount of student debt, but I went to work for Barbara and that was my film school, which I'll take over any film school. <laughs> well, so if you don't mind, I would love to, to retrace the trajectory of how you made your first film with James Hogue as the subject, somebody that you went to high school with at Palo Alto and, and sort of how that came about David Samuels has a huge article that comes out in the New Yorker and a subsequent book. But I, I, can you give me the genesis of how that became your first film and excavating yeah. the dynamic you had with with Hogue? I, I guess originally you met him. I want to get the name right. Jay Mitchell Huntsman at that time. Yes. Um, so a lot to unpack there. Um, yes. <laughs> you know. So I was working for Barbara and and working on some of her projects and thinking about something that I could do for myself. Like it was pretty clear to me that I, I needed to do something for myself if I was going to advance as a filmmaker. That no one was going to give me an opportunity to direct, to direct a movie. And and I had always been, I'd say, obsessed with with Jim Hogue um, since he had shown up at my high school. I mean, I kind of carried him with me and not thought about him every day, but. But that was such a strange, almost dreamlike experience that he had arrived at, at my high school when I was a sophomore and he was a senior. And I, I won't say we got to be friends because we didn't, but I saw him from afar. And he was this he was this con man, right? I mean, he showed up and passed himself off as a high school kid, but in fact, he was 26 at the time. And, and then he, he was exposed and he disappeared. And it was almost like, did this really, did this really even happen? I mean, yeah. how could this, how could this be? And, and I knew... 
I had friends who had run with him on the cross country team. And uh, I think I was actually ended up writing about that high school experience. Um, I wrote a whole chapter for a book that never was published about what I remembered from high school. And it's only a small part of that that found its way into the documentary. But, and I wrote that after the film was made, but, um, but it forced me to really think even deeper about what I remembered from that time when I was 15. And, but, but anyway, I carried that, that memory, if you will, forward. And then he surfaced at Princeton. And I remember buying the New York times the day that they wrote about that um, story and, and, and like opening the paper and, and my, you know, jaw hit the floor and here he was again. And he'd, he'd been exposed by Rene Pacheco from my high school who had been a, a student at Yale and had seen him running for the Princeton team. And, 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 and again, it was like, Oh my, you know, this, he's done it again in even more spectacular fashion. And I think so around, I think it was around 98 uh, when I was working with Barbara and, and sort of, I, 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 oh, I actually had read a piece that David had written in Harper's about maybe campus imposters, David Samuels. And hmm. I was at the time also thinking about Jim Hogue and, and sort of put the two together and, and thought, you know, maybe, maybe here's, well, now one thing from all of the reporting around Hogue's arrest at Princeton was there was no, no real explanation, no real explanation of his motivation. You know, there was like something missing from the story. There was tabloid coverage. It was, it was a kind of tabloid story, right? But, but no deep reporting was ever done on it. And it was really a mystery that remained about Jim's motivations that, that I think stuck with me. And um, reading David's piece and thinking more about Jim and, and sort of wondering, like, where was he? What could I, you know, was there a, a story here? What, I, you know, I wasn't even as presumptuous to think there might be a film. But I did one thing, <clears throat> which was I picked up the phone and I, I think it helped that I was working as a producer, to like learning to be a producer for Barbara and sort of learning to, I don't know, uh, how, how you, I mean, basically learning to be a little bit of a reporter and like mm-hmm. not be shy about picking up the phone and doing things like that that you have to do as a reporter. And I picked up the phone and I called Wayne Hobelman, who was Jim Hogue's track coach in high school at, uh, in, um, in Kansas City. And Wayne, it was like Wayne had been waiting for 20 years to talk to somebody about Jim. And, and, you know, when you have one of those conversations, I'm sure you've had them. And, you know, often you get the, you get the opposite. You, someone has sort of monosyllabic responses, nothing interesting to say. And, and that's it. But, but, but Wayne has sort of spilled forth, right? This incredible feelings of hurt and affection. And, and it sort of opened up a universe to me that was extremely inviting. And so I, um, I had some friends who I'd made in documentary, uh, DP and uh, Tony Hardman, and who was working with me on another project, I think, at the time. And uh, we just got on a plane and we flew to Kansas City and I interviewed Wayne and Keith Mark. And actually what had happened before that, I should back up, is I reached out to David and we had a, we went to a bar on Lafayette Street called the Temple Bar and had a martini and got drunk and talked about campus imposters and um, we thought and I told him I had this idea to make this movie about Jim Hogue and he said I think that's a great idea and we said well let's team up let's let's see if we can do something together here and and that that seemed like an exciting opportunity and um, so 
So we all, and David thought, well, I'll, you'll make a documentary and I'll write an article about it for Harper's. I think he had, had thought at the time he was writing a lot for Harper's. And mm-hmm. um, so we, 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 we teamed up and we did, we took that trip to Kansas City together. I went, I inter- we interviewed Wayne Hobelman and um, Jim's old high school friend, Keith Mark. And that was another incredible interview. Uh, Keith, Keith is a, such a strong voice in the film, as you know. And uh, I sort of, we love the way that Keith talked about Jim, you know, how he kind of got pulled one over on the Ivy League. And I don't know, there was something, you know, I was thinking a lot about con men and imposters. And, and Jim was a very different kind of con man and that I, I think his purpose was noble to get an education and to really to, to, to live a different and better life. And, you know, so many con men who are the subject of our fascination are like really grifters who are trying to like, you know, what are they trying to do? Like basically steal money, right? Or um, maybe it's, it's something more nefarious, but, but Jim's, Jim's con seemed to have a nobler purpose. And that was very romantic, very kind of Gatsby-esque. And I loved that he was almost like a literary character in his, his deception, his invention, his flights of fancy. And so um, that, and that was what I got from Keith Mark, you know, and um, what kind of kept us going and kept me going and like sort of digging at the story of Jim Hope. This is all development. No one was paying for this and I was paying out of my own pocket. And, um, and then uh, my friend, we actually, one thing that was beautiful is I brought my super eight film camera to Kansas City, and we, we ended up at a high school track meet, and I shot a ton of Super 8 film, and and then we had it developed, and it was just, it was beautiful, and there was a texture to it that was very evocative of the past, you know, of Jim's past, I thought, and that was part of the material that we were able to weave together in this fundraising trailer that um, my friend Yuna Kwok edited um, as a favor, and we put together this little seven-minute piece, which I remember was scored to some um, Philip Glass, Earl Morris. Uh, I, mean, I think it was the Thin, Thin Blue Line, which is kind of a cliche now. Mm. <laughs> was even then to use that music, um, but it, it, it had a kind of tension and mystery that was perfect for our trailer. And it was a, it was actually a, a I think Una cut it in like two days, <clears throat> and um, on a borrowed edit system. And <laughs> we, it was kind of a wonderful something. Really interesting had happened, and when we were shooting the film. The, the trailer, which was we had gone to interview a journalist who had covered the story in Palo Alto, Jason Cole. He's in the, you know, in the film. And, uh, oh, he's amazing. He's, he's really amazing. And he what, thought you were James Hogue. So, yeah. So, so first what happened is on the phone, when I was talking to Jason, uh, before we went down to interview him in Miami, um, he, he 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 was like a little bit paranoid, I guess, or suspicious. But first, he um, he he did think that I was uh, Hogue over the phone, and he actually called he called the number of the office where I was working and and like tried to verify my identity, and that's what someone I worked with told me. And mm-hmm. so, um, and so when we went, I went down to Miami with. David, I think he he knew when he met me that I wasn't Jim Hogue because I don't look like Jim Hogue. But I think he felt that David looked close. David doesn't look like Jim Hogue either, but 
<laughs> but maybe closer in, in, in like height and in some kind of appearance to Hogue. I mean, maybe Jim's like 5'8", and David's probably 5'8", too. I don't know. But mm. And so so then he thought he thought David was Jim Hogue. And um, and that's what on camera is he's actually he's actually responding to David um, in that moment. And David is a bit of a provocateur. And when Jason said to David, you look like Jim Hogue, David took off his glasses and said with great dramatic flourish, do you recognize me now? And he was kind of baiting <laughs> He was really wow. baiting him. He was he was baiting him. It was pretty funny. I mean, it was kind of cruel. But 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 and then and then Jason kind of took the bait, and and there was that very weird interlude. So there's a bit of a complex backstory to that moment, but that's it. So um, that's a long story short. Like we had this trailer. Um, I was an aspiring filmmaker. I took it to this film market. The IFP has this like film market in New York, um, and we shopped it and HBO really loved the tra- trailer was killer and HBO loved it. A lot of people loved it. And it had that kind of great hook at the end um, of Jason Cole freaking out and this great Kansas city track imagery and these really strong interviews. And, um, but of course, no, no Jim Hogue, he wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. And so, but HBO got on, they got on board for development and they said, well, if you can get Jim Hogue to be in this movie, Nancy Abraham, and Sheila Nevins at HBO said, if you can get Jim Hogue to be in this movie, we'll do it. We'll give you some money for development. If you get him to be in it, we'll do it. And and this was like incredible. Um, HBO was like the biggest game in town at that time. And um, and so we actually it didn't take their money for development. But based on their enthusiasm, we – God, I mean, I haven't really talked about all this in a long time, but we – we we sent what I had an address for Jim. I think I'd hired a private investigator who was a friend of my girlfriend's at the time. And she, we had an address for Jim, like his last known address, which was in Aspen, I believe. And I sent, I've done something, I did something I've never done ever, you, um, which is I sent him the trailer to the film that we cut and a letter and um and then he called he called he called me and he said um he said he really liked the trailer and he said he said i'll i'll if you he said i'll talk to you and then we I might have traveled to Aspen before that to try to find him and not found him and only found like his last, you know, known as his, his old landlady. That's a little bit of that's in the film. And um, so it was maybe after that trip, after not finding him and going to the courthouse in Aspen and looking for his, you know, whatever his recorded address was um, that he called. I think he was impressed that I had a New York cell phone. I don't know. That meant like somehow I was like a credible, (laughs) a credible Mm. filmmaker, which was far from the truth because I remember he commented on that, like in my 917 number. And um, I think that's true. And (laughs) so we flew Jim 
we flew Jim to New York, picked him up at Newark Airport, drove him to David's apartment in like Cobble Hill, and interviewed him. Wow. Just a little. Yeah, we put him on camera for a couple of hours and interviewed him. And it was I didn't I kind of blew the there's I'll back out to say that like I feel like the film as a whole is a little bit of a failure. And huh. it's a it's a first film and inevitably like they're you make big, big mistakes and small mistakes and sometimes things you can't control. And I feel like looking back on the movie it does not really do justice to Jim's story. And I feel like there's some failures of direction. There are a number of failures, but, <clears throat> and I, I can't say this is a complete failure, but we did, we interviewed Jim in, in, a, in a David's apartment in Cobble Hill and he talked for a couple of hours and it's pretty interesting. Um, enough to get HBO to commit to make the movie. And they, 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 uh, which was great. I think we just showed, I went to Sheila's apartment and I showed her some footage and she said something that I'll never forget, which was, um, I think she recognized that he was like, he's a little off balance. Jim is right. It's kind of mm -hmm. he's hard to access. He's not, you know, in that interview, he was clearly like, you know, thoughtful, articulate, interesting, struggling to kind of find words to, you know, respond to, these questions that we had for him about what he'd done, why he'd done it. Um, but not like a spellbinding, charismatic, what you'd expect kind of con man to hold the screen. Um, kind of more inscrutable character, which makes sense. Sheila looked at the footage and she said, well, maybe he'll kill himself at the end of this and that'll be a really good ending. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, um, and so, but, but it was an, it was, it was like not the greatest interview, but it was enough to prove that he would participate and they financed the film and gave me more money than I ever imagined. You know, um, it was a great stroke of good fortune that also they took a chance on me as a first time director. Um, I had some executive producers and actually Sheila said, she said, you know, great. I mean, I had, we'd made the trailer and that was pretty strong. And so clearly they knew, like, we, 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 we sort of could pretend we knew what we were doing. But, um, she said, I'd like you to bring on an, an executive, another executive producer to help guide you. And she, she gave me, um, two suggestions. One was Joe Berlinger and one was, uh, James Marsh. And I met, I talked to Joe. He was really busy. I think probably, I don't know what he was doing, but he was kind of busy and, and James uh, um, was maybe also busy, but less busy or more interested. And I really liked James. I liked his work. And I said, well, I'd like to work with James. So James came on as an EP to, to, to make sure I didn't go off the rails. And, um, and then we, we, then we had our, we had money and we, we kind of set off to like report the story and um, deal with James uh, Hogue and not Jim Hogue, not James Marsh, Jim Hogue. And, hmm. um, and so David and I did that together for a period of time. We reported the story and conducted more interviews and Jim's Princeton classmates like over time agreed to talk. Some of them, some of them didn't and um, retrace some of his California steps. And 
uh, other people in his life. And that was, you know, I don't know, a period that was like a year, I suppose. I can't even remember. Um, and at some point, David had enough that he could go off and write his story, which he did. Um, and I, I needed to keep going. Like, I didn't have, have enough to make the film. So we we kind of parted ways creatively. Well, I want to, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to get your sense of, in the subsequent years since I've seen that film, I've really become obsessed with con men myself. And it seems so timely now when you think of uh, the Dan Mallory, A.J. Finn situation of manufacturing a past in order to uh, gain mm-hmm. advancement. Uh, mm-hmm. Lance Armstrong having the most lucrative lie in the history of sports. Mm-hmm. There's a w- wonderful documentary called Sour Grapes about Rudy Carniwan, who infiltrates the wine world, and apparently there are mm-hmm. still 10,000 fake wines in private collectors. But again, mm-hmm. um, what I wanted to ask you about was your approach with Hogue definitely allowed for a lot of sympathy of his classmates. And you also went to the administration to get their sense that this guy defrauded our institution. And then the classmates seemed very supportive of what he'd done. They said, uh, as you mentioned, Keith, his best friend, saying he didn't con any of those tests he was taking. He didn't con his way into the grades he was getting. He made more use out of this education than the vast majority of people at Princeton. Um, And it made me wonder how you took the approach you did, which allowed him to kind of open up and people to open up, where Hogue's story does seem very much a canary in the coal mine of the story that places like institutions like Princeton and Ivy League institutions tell themselves about Mm -hmm. being a meritocracy. He's adapting a a vaguely Latino name in order to get in with this kind of Huckleberry Finn backstory. I think the Times said this last year, one in four or maybe one in five students at Harvard were legacy students. So he's kind of at the other end of that, like in terms of what he was trying to appeal to to get into these institutions that I thought was interesting. But I wondered what seemed interesting about the clash with Hogue and David Samuels was is Samuels comes from these institutions in terms of he is a Harvard graduate, he is a Princeton graduate. Um, I wonder, how do you see what Hogue was trying to do in terms of exposing something about these Ivy League institutions? Like, like as you, you mentioned, Gatsby, it's a very Gatsby-ish, uh, romanticized, I don't know, what journey that he's on, but, but it's, there's not a well, daisy for... For hope is, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. Well, there is a, a, of, a of a sort. I mean, okay. which, which is that running for Jim was, you know, and running Glory what was the kind of was the day, was the innocence lost was the thing that was stripped from him at the sure. University of Wyoming, um, and, you know, and, and sort of so surprisingly in the same way that he then did it to others, right? And that, that they imported these Kenyan runners who were in their late twenties and were Olympians already. And they had them run as undergraduates at the, at the, at the school. And poor Jim, who was the 17 year old, 18 year old recruit was like suddenly like outclassed and displaced and sort of lost, I think his dream and um, had his dream dashed and, and then sought to recapture it. 
And I always found that deeply sympathetic. But, you know, you could look at what he did at Princeton and say, well, of course he ran well at Princeton. He was 28. That's when you peak as a distance runner, right? And, um, of course, he was, you know, he could actually had to, he he did never ran to his full potential at Princeton. I think he was afraid to because he knew that if he did, he would just, you know, become, he would attract too much attention. And in fact, running, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like that, that sort of extraordinary tragic dimension of the story, but the running, which is what propels him, is the thing that brings, that ultimately brings him down, right? It's sad attract me that Renee sees him running. Right. Um, uh, and um, so, I, but, um, it, to respond to one thing you said, I think that what David and I, well, I have to speak for myself. I, I don't know what, you know, David had many motivations, but um, I think the idea that Jim did expose the, the fallacy, the big lie of the system of these elite institutions, that they were meritocratic um, in, in the sham of his application was exposed their own lie. Um, it mm. is something that I was deeply drawn to um, because I, I, I do believe that there is a, they're engaged in a kind of masquerade in which we know now. I mean, we knew then and we know now to a greater degree. And I, I think Rick Singer exposed, you know, e- even that whether it's, you know, there's the front door, there's the back door and maybe there's the side door, too. And, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, n- n- probably no school with a stronger legacy tradition than Princeton. Um and the idea that Jim could sort of in a very calculated fashion kind of feed them a narrative, which like triggered them, you know, in so many ways. And also, I mean, you know, he also came in as a recruited athlete, which we know is the kind of backdoor. Um, right. Uh, but also with this, I mean, with high test scores, with a, you know, a kind of Latin sounding name, you know, with so many, with from a state like Utah that has no applicants. I mean, so in kind of every way he gained the system, right? Um, well, and, 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 just, and, and sorry to interrupt, but I mean, we're seeing this now too with Lori Laughlin mm-hmm. paying half a million dollars to get in, and that's a crime. But Jared Kushner donating millions of dollars to Harvard is a completely legal way to achieve the exact same end. Right. So it, it's sort of about how, how elegantly can you can you play the game? And it's, <laughs> right, not, right. And it's, it's not because, the, you know, it, there, there is no fair set of rules, right? There is no level playing field. Jim knew that. And we know that. And I love that about the story. And I, I, I felt like, you know, you could write a big essay about the college admissions process, but I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in how Jim's, David and I were both interested in how Jim's story kind of exposed that. And, um, and yet, in so many ways, he was qualified to be there. I mean, that's the beauty of it, too, is he wasn't, he was intellectually and academic, academically and athletically gifted. And, um, and, and, you know, and was desperately hungry to learn, was like a deeply curious person, did well in his classes. His professors loved him. I think he was a good friend. Um, and a good teammate, and of course admitted to the Ivy League, so socially seemed to have some, you know, something to offer as well. Uh, admitted to the Ivy Club, so I, I don't, you know, I I I love that about Jim's story. And um, so, I, you talked about, I'm sort of unwinding what you said, and back to David's maybe more adversarial relationship to Jim, and I'll say that. It's, I'm sure what he, what you see, I, 
again, I didn't read the book. Um, I read the article, which is not so much about that. But I do know that Jim is a very tricky character. And mm-hmm. I found, as a documentary subject, kind of dis- disappointing and frustrating. I think that's what Sheila was responding to, too, when she looked at that original footage. It's like you sort of have an expectation that a con man is going to be this great raconteur, you know, and sort of draw you into his, you know, his storytelling charms. And, and Jim, you know, he succeeded by withholding himself, right, and, and allowing you to kind of fill that space for him which I do, we ended up having to do in the documentary, and that's kind of true to who he is. He's sort of a mosaic of all of the perspectives that people brought to him and the things that they, he sort of gave them enough and then they sort of filled in the rest. And and then he's, he, in a way, he's not the best teller of his own story, right? That was well, the frustration that I felt, and I think David felt too. But I wonder about that because when you have that Princeton teammate to say his genius was allowing us to build him, I mean, that's the magic of it. I, I, I'd I never thought of that that way before. And I kept thinking about some of these elements of what he seemed to represent. For example, in the realm of magic, nobody cares about the secret. Once you expose the secret, the, the, the spell is broken. It's the trick that it's used for that creates this magic. It's still a con, but yeah. it's like there was a there was um, an obituary of of the actor and musician Harry Anderson that made this point. He was a con man originally. He hustled people, and they'd break his jaw for stealing their money. And then he Mm -hmm. turned it into an act as a magician, and they leave with a smile and pay him more money. But it's the same mechanism. Yeah, no, I think Jim's... Jim's... um... You could look at what Jim did as a kind of really as a magic trick, and that's right. I mean, I just think that in that, and this, I mean, this is true of of imposters, but but I think in recognizing what people would bring to him as much as what right. he could bring, he would bring to them, and the, and and Princeton as an institution brought it to him, and his classmates brought it to him too, and that that willingness, that kind of oh, a need to. Um, to believe, right? Right, right. And uh, I mean, it would have been, I wish, I feel like my film, you know, it's only 56 minutes, I think. And I feel like Jim deserved a feature. I don't know. I feel at most, not all of my film, that film to me is unfinished business. And mm. I feel like I didn't, I, I, I think there was just more there to say, not from Jim himself, but more there about what he did or who he did it to. And, and I think, I, I think I kind of crammed it all. I don't know. I struggled with Jim himself. Like you get to Jim at the end of my movie and it's, I think probably audiences are like, huh? That's like, what? He's, you know, it's not what I expected. And it's a little bit disappointing. It was, was for me in a way. And I didn't, I didn't know as a film, I mean, I was pretty young and inexperienced and also didn't know how to handle him. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I would do it differently now. Um, and I, you know, for a long time, David and I wanted to develop a scripted movie about Jim's story um, because I felt like, well, maybe if I could work with an actor to kind of bring this to life in a different way, I could get inside this story in ways that I can't making a documentary. And I don't know if that's true. And in fact, I was, those, those, I was never, that wasn't a project that I was ever able to bring to life either, but it was because I somehow didn't feel like, and maybe, 
maybe that's inevitable. Like when you come up against someone like Jim, that you feel kind of shortchanged. <laughs> well, uh, you, you, you keep saying that, but I, I, I mean, I found the, I found the description of what running, the role that running played in his mm. life, almost metaphysically illuminating into the dynamic of a con man, which I find the most interesting, which is all banks, the top security people that they hire are ex-bank robbers. The top mm -hmm. people to monitor cheats in Las Vegas are ex-cheats. Deceptive people understand the truth better than honest people because it's, there's no necessity in understanding the truth if you're honest. You're already honest. Where it's vital to understand it if you're a deceptive con, con man. And it it seemed to me that running, I mean, I'd never thought of it this way. I also was a pretty serious cross-country runner in high school and did some marathons. It's all self-deception. It's yeah. all finding your breaking point and figuring out a way to get another step and then another step and then 5,000 steps. And I just thought, wow, I'd never thought of how running would inform. I look at my cross-country running as the greatest tool I've ever had to write novels. Yeah. Because I don't know how to go forward every day. So just take a few steps every day, get a thousand words, you'll get there. And there was something about that in the way that you offered uh, just illumination into his process through these people who had experienced him that I thought was so profound. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the running dimension of his character was extraordinary. I mean, what the thread it represented in his, the, uh, his life um, his ticket to Princeton, his undoing, the sort of metaphysical dimension of his character, sort of the, the mind-body separation that's required to be a, mm. a, a runner of that of that level, um, sort of. Uh, I, you know, I, I think I think what I'm saying when I talk about the film too is I'm not sure I had the tools, mm. uh, maybe to fully bring to life, even in like visual ways, um, that story and. You know, I think I, it certainly was a lot of evidence gathered and time spent and wonderful archive and really good interviews with people who knew him and maybe less so with him himself. But I feel like, I think there were, I, you know, this is me, you know, <laughs> I, 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 gestures in the right direction and just maybe not, you know, learning how to do it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I I think there was a you know a real beauty. Also, the thing about the run, like running, the beauty to it is you couldn't something you could really lie about. I mean, you could run, he could pass himself off as he did as a younger runner, and then report those times to Princeton. But ultimately, I mean, he actually had to run those times, right? He actually I did enter the Las Vegas half marathon and run and you know record a particular time. And and when they brought him out to recruit him. John hmm. Luff says this in the film, you know, and the coach Larry Ellis says, take, take Hogue out, take him for a run and see if he's for real. And Luff takes him out and comes back and says, oh, he's for real. This guy can really run. Like, you know, you couldn't lie about that. And I love that. Well, I, I, would, I would just point out, though, you're right. He had to do the run. He had to get those times. However, if I know that I have to prove something to a guy, I can try to run at a pace that I know that I can't actually run. And maybe I'll do it. But it's not a pace I would be able to do on my own. It needs mm -hmm. to be a deceptive act in order for me to start that way. And I have to find a way to get to the finish line at that pace I've never done before, which I think is an incredibly deceptive act. 
but it's Maybe. also self-deceptive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I, I, that maybe that is true. I, I mean, I think in Jim's case, he, he, he could, he, he could run at that level. He proved that he could. He, he always been able to, right? I'm not trying to dismiss his that he was a phenomenal runner. I'm just saying maybe he yeah. was even a better runner because of some of this uh, psychological sophistication he had about deception. Maybe it improved some of his performances. Well, I think that's an interesting question. Like, how good of a runner was he? Real? Could he? Could he? I mean, yeah. I think one what one thing that's probably true is that when he was running against those Kenyans at the University of Wyoming, he probably recognized, and this is probably a great blow, is that he would never be that good, right? Because mm. you just maybe you know genetically, you, you you're missing a gear. Um, you, yeah. Right. I mean. Uh, you just don't have it. You'll you'll never be an Olympian. You'll never run that fast, no matter how hard you train. And I don't know if he was willing to accept that. You know, and that and I, I just I think that there was a kind of psychological break. Look, I mean, I think you could debate. You know, was you know what was Jim's home life like? What was he born with? Did he? But it seems to me in the story that he undergoes some kind of. The identity that he's constructed for himself and that Keith Mark talks about as this phenomenal high school runner and sort of different kind of kid, it, he, he, it gets fractured, you know, and, and whatever that – like a piece of Jim, the real Jim gets left behind as a result of what happens at the University of Wyoming. Right. And he, he moves forward with a, a different – obviously abandons the, the sort of moral control mechanisms that most of us have that say don't – Make up who you are. Don't lie to get into a high school. Don't fabricate an application to get into Princeton. Like he just that that he you know he gives himself permission to do things that most of us will never do. And, and, and yet, think, and yet at the same time, like I mean, I just read a couple of years ago, the confidence game. We're lying mm-hmm. endlessly all over in our life. We're lying to our partners. We're lying to our friends. We lie everywhere. And the line I love is that lying is a cooperative act. No lie has power until there's somebody there who wants to accept it. Yeah, right. I mean, our capacity to believe is greater than our capacity to invent. So <laughs> I think that might even be from that book. You know, I, I, I yeah. I, um, I mean, I've always, it's been a theme of my work too. I mean, sort of invention, role play, performance. Um, I, I feel like it's sort of in so many movies that I've made subsequently, I've, I've been drawn to this, these themes and how they've been, um, enacted in, in, by different people in different forms. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, Jim is like the proto-character for me. I don't know why either, but... Um, can know. we can we jump to your most recent film? Because I think we, we just have an hour today. Um, yeah. So I find it fascinating that so much of your career, you've had to work so isolated, struggling to get money, I, I just interviewed Errol Morris two days ago. He told me he's never made money on anything he's ever done in documentary, despite how the impact his films have had. It's all been from advertising. Yeah. You have just sold a record-breaking documentary called Boys State at the Sundance Film Festival. So I, just for aspiring filmmakers out there who may be listening, I, I want to know how you found this story, maybe just a quick synopsis about what it is, what drew you to it, and then the execution of this thing? Because I, I think this is going to be a kind of hoop dreams for what it is 
where generations will look back on it. And also, I just can't imagine how many spinoffs of this are possible. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, well, I'll say that I, in 25 years of making documentary, I'd, I've never done better than break even. And so it, it <laughs> really feels, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, a stroke of good good luck, good fortune. Uh, a fact that the industry has changed in way. Also, that I, I don't know the, the the market valuation is a you know sort of a little hard to get your 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 bearings around. I mean, I don't. My 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 partner was my wife Amanda, and I joke that that um, it, it it's a little hard to process the that result in that like it feels like it happened to somebody else named Jesse Moss and Amanda McVeigh. Um just because mm. my my experience in the industry it's been a really good one. I mean from Con Man where HBO stepped up to I've had hard times and lean times and times where I struggled and I've been in the industry long enough to see it change too and the marketplace change for, for documentary but um I just I I um I know it's a great lesson in like kind of being true to yourself too and that like that I've done work that was more work for hire and some of it's really good work, but, but the work I'm most proud of is the work where I just followed my impulse and it led me, you know, to, to, to a place that was a much more independent kind of film. And that's true of Boy State in that like it, it just began as an article I read in the Washington Post about Texas Boy State and the boys voting to secede from the United States um, in 2017. And that, that was like a little bit of a, a local scandal, black eye uh, on the program and um, uh, got this news attention. And I just happened to read it at the time that I think all of us were asking ourselves, like how polarized we'd become as a country and how hard it was for people to actually talk to people who had different political points of view and thinking, well, here's a space in America in which people actually get together who have different politics and actually try to talk to each other and work things out. And they're teenage boys. And that's pretty interesting. And um, Texas is a is a fascinating place unto itself, and kind of emblematic of the country and its sort of large largeness and and political di- di- divisiveness. You know, it's not red, it's not blue, it's kind of purple, and um, and it's sort of exaggerated. I think is what 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 was appealing about it. And the program in Texas, which is found nationally in you know other states, but in Texas is um, big. 1100 kids they meet at the texas state capitol and um that was just very inviting and and i loved that there was a playfulness of form like we were talking about that that, that there's it's an exercise in role play which i always like um Mm. sort of the big reduced to a miniature that that we could contain in, in documentary form hopefully if we could find a way to do it in production and um that was the challenge here because i'm used to making films i mean jim the con man very small crew sometimes by myself, but mostly with a DP, the overnighters by myself um, in the field. But but this is a movie that required a much bigger crew and a different approach to production. But I don't know. I, I um, felt like a movie that needed to be made now. And I, I, I liked that these boys were going to be kind of trying things on and that it was hopefully going to be a real transformative experience for them. And I think that the good fortune that we we, had, we we were blessed with good luck, which was we found amazing kids, and and the experience really did transform them, and and I think that's what we captured. And um, I you know I certainly never expected us to have 
the success we found at Sundance um, with with the, the jury and and with Apple coming on board the film. But I think there's a way. Maybe maybe it's uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you feel about it, but I think people want to engage with these questions, but in a way that isn't as so much as kind of immediately off-putting. You know, like it's I I, I find it hard to read. Well, that's any, a, any, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, this is a program that's existed since 1937. It's in every state but Hawaii. It's produced the likes of Samuel Alito, Cory Booker, Dick Cheney, Bill Clinton amongst its alumni. Um, What I found it was able to do, and the only person, well, like one of the people that stands out to me who's achieved what you did, is this could have become Lord of the Flies or sort of, been uplifting about the highest ideals of democracy, but it's like the way Jonathan Haidt in a lot of his work as a social psychologist has talked about the differences between conservatives and liberals. He's one of the only people where I can cite him to conservative people I know where they don't feel insulted. Like it opens conversations rather than polemics. And it seems Mm -hmm. like that's extraordinarily difficult in filmmaking where I know at the beginning of, of the title of a Michael Moore film where it's headed, pretty much, don't I? Yeah. yeah. So I just, I just wonder, you've got 1,100 kids, you've got a week to film them. How do you zero in on the kids that you chose to carry this story, donkeys, as Lawrence Wright called them, to pack in so much information in a compelling way for an audience? Yeah. Well, casting was arduous, but, but also... Uh, just a fascinating experience to traverse Texas and go into kids' houses and sit down and talk to them about their politics, about, you know, their, their dreams, about um, what their aspirations at Boys State were about, you know, kind of, there were very free form conversations too. There was like no script to figure out who was right for this. But I think it, what, what we began to quickly respond to was the kids who were, had, had a level of political sophistication were, were really appealing to us, you know, who really thought about politics in a deep way, like Ben Feinstein. He's got that Reagan doll on his bookshelf. Or um, uh, <laughs> Robert, Robert McDougall, who, when we went into his room, he had a, uh, he'd built, as a, when he was a little bit younger, but he still had it in his room, it's like a Lego model of an Afghan village with an American, like, platoon deployed in it. And I just thought, mm-hmm. here's a, Here's a, you know, these are kids are working some stuff out in really interesting ways. And they're also they're ambitious, which we needed. Yeah. We wanted kids who were going to really go for it. And um, so it, and we wanted diversity of, 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 of ethnicity, a diversity of social, socioeconomic background, diversity of political. So, we're, you know, we weren't like checking boxes, but we knew we wanted and we knew that that, that the program skews in a more um, kind of conservative direction just historically by you know, who it's drawing from. and But, but we wanted to find kids who were going to challenge that um, orthodoxy, if you will. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I mean, that's where Stephen was a stroke of good fortune and not a kid who presented as someone who might go far, even though he had sophistication. Like, we just didn't know he could give a speech until he gave a speech. And he has, like, an extraordinary ability to connect with an audience Um uh, and that was something that was just like we were as wowed, I think, as the audience is as they watch his matur- maturation as a candidate and how he this sort of underdog builds uh, support for himself. 
So I, I, you know, we got lucky. I think we got lucky in finding the kids we did. We got very lucky in the, in the paths that they took and the intersections that we found in their trajectory through that week. Um, and, um, so, I mean, you always, you know, look, I mean, verite depends on that. It depends on, you know, finding kids who, um, you know, the camera finds compelling, complex that we, I do, you know, that I can fall in love with. Um, and I, you know, I have my, I bring politics to the story, but I, I think, um, and I've always been interested politically, even though I, you know, I come, you know, grew up in a very left of center home and I, you know, my politics are left of center. I, I, I've loved my documentary journeys have often taken me across that political divide. Um, and, and so I was really interested in, you know, kind of in Ben's worldview in his ideology and, and also in the question of like how flexible they were in their ideologies, right. And sort of mm. where, where our political beliefs come from. And, um, you know, that's not, doesn't get like totally unpacked in the film, but I, I think that question of like, how formed are we? And particularly at the age of 17, you know, are, are they kind of set? And I think to, to watch, to me, the biggest surprise of the film is that, um, well, that, that kids like Steven and Renee could have success and that, um, you know, that, that the rabble that could devolve into a Lord of the Flies um, anarchy could be summoned by the right person um, could be summoned to their kind of a, a higher calling to their better angels. Right. And that, right. that tension, that tension uh, that we, that we could find that tension and that it could be dramatized in the, with these individual characters was, was uh, I think just luck. And how do you see it? Like when you look at the political landscape ahead, it's still just amazing to me to imagine that November is an election during this quarantine. Um, with with all of these changes that are emerging, like with Trump in 2016, um, you know, he's going after Obama right now with Obamagate, the rise of Bernie as a viable candidate, the Green, Green New Deal becoming a viable topic and gaining massive purchase across the country. What is your optimism looking at this this pack of kids that probably are going to emerge as very powerful characters in this continuing journey of perfecting our democracy. I mean, I understand the obvious question is, are you hopeful <laughs> or cynical, but how did your views change of where you thought you might get to versus to where you are now as a result of making this film? Yeah. I mean, I think we're still at, we're still at that precarious point, you know, that we were when, when we embarked on that project two years ago, um, if, if not more so, um, I mean, I, I think what drew us to the program, too, was this, you know, formerly theoretical and then very kind of real sense that democracy is not something we can take for granted, that the institutions that sustain our democracy have been under assault um, and, and that, um, you know, it's not inconceivable that we could tip into a place that, that is truly, I mean, we, we, we've tipped into it in the pandemic and, and, and in our, you know, in our democracy i think it it's it, it seems conceivable that it could fracture further doesn't it and so i i so that precariousness has you know remains and if not now that we're living it under the pandemic and watching a candidate campaign from his basement 
I mean, I, you know, God knows. But um, I think there is optimism for me in in, in the movie, and that um, with, with the right voices um, like Stephen Garza, who can find a way, sort of a miraculous way, to find common ground in, in a place that seems like least hospitable to it. I'm filled with some hope, um, and if not hope for the current moment, I think generationally, I think that also what the film for me was about is, and I think the realization that's articulated by Stephen is that they can't wait for the grown-ups to fix their problems, whether it's climate change or gun violence or consensus in you know finding the center that will hold an American life. They can't wait for for us to fix it for them because we haven't, you know. In many cases, we've just fucked it up, and and I think you see that in in you know the the movement of the Parkland kids and in the and and you know people like sort of generational leadership shift driving the Green New Deal. I mean, you got Sir Bernie, but I mean, it's a you know younger people recognizing that um, they can seize control of of the discourse and make change. So, you know, Boy State's an exercise, but I think that the willingness of those kids to throw themselves into the process was what I found really encouraging and hopeful and, um, you know, leaves me with a tiny, tiny glimmer of, of, of hope for the future. I can't wait for people to see it. I'm just so interested in the reactions of friends that I have from all over the political spectrum, just, uh, one of the things that I thought was just so masterful about it is the conversations that will emerge, I think, will really do a lot of good for for people. Well, I hope I hope the film provides entry points for, for people of very different points of view and that it, at least in the very least um, as a work, it, it, it brings people in and, you know, isn't, you know, I've never been attracted to, you know, at the agitprop school myself. Uh, I mean, sometimes, you you know, you can be faulted for, you know, and I have been for, for, you know, people accuse you of like, you know, not taking a side, you know, I made this movie about the Iraq war and I was, I mean, some criticism was like, well, what, but I, I think also it's, you know, when, when, when you're just, when you're making, when you're letting your characters tell that story for you, you know, inevitably there's going to be some, some, some thinking that the audience has to do for themselves. And, and I think that, you know, this film too, I mean, it doesn't moralize, um, but I, I, and I think there's something, there, there are things to be fearful of that you see in the film, but I think there's plenty to be hopeful for. In, in the world of documentary, it seems like in the last year or two, um, the films that have had the most purchase on the public, I mean, right now, the Michael Jordan documentary, a 10-part documentary about one season that this guy was playing, broke every record that ESPN's ever had with their documentaries. Um, probably... How ambitious that was was predicated on the huge success of OJ Made in America. HBO had Leaving Neverland about Michael Jackson and, and his history with abuse. What do you make of the kind of documentaries that seem to have such impact on the sort of cultural discourse? Are you pleased by it? Do you do you find them engaging? Um, well. You know, on one level, I'm I'm not I'm not surprised. I mean, th- these are stories and characters that are incredibly well known, right? I mean, they're 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 good stories, well told, yeah. but they're also you're talking about people who are um, superstars already, you know, and yeah. they're not hard to reach an audience. Like if you're making a 
show about Michael Jordan. I mean, everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows something about his career, you know, and, and it's not to say there, isn't, there aren't things to be discovered and, it's, you know, a story to be revisited here and some great value there. And, I, you know, I certainly enjoyed OJ. Um, and I, but the things about it that I enjoyed more were like sort of the, the, the wider portrait of Los Angeles at that time, you know, and, yeah. and sort of where it widened. That to me is the potential of the, the limited series is it widens the, it sort of allows for, you know, it allows for a couple of things, but one is a slightly wider view um, to situate that kind of front story against and it, it, a little more novelistic complexity and character. Um, and so I think that's to be welcomed. And I think that's what these projects do. I mean, I, I'm always like as someone who's made films, made more films about people you've never heard of. I recognize that in, in those films are really inherent marketing challenges. That's not to say those people and those stories aren't as interesting. They're just not brand names. And I think in documentary, and it's I, as a filmmaker, as a commercial filmmaker, you know, a filmmaker who exists in the marketplace, you know, when you think about setting up a project, selling a project, like if it's a known commodity, it's a lot easier. And, you know, the value of Hoop, you know, I mean, both going back to where we started, I mean, Hoop Dreams, you know, that film, why it's a landmark then and still deeply influential now is that those are not superstars. I mean, the film made them superstars, but they were not people you'd ever heard of, you know, and it's found in their stories, like the universality that, you know, is why an audience connected with it. Um, Of course, basketball, too, but sure. I don't know. I mean, all of my Verite films are about people you've never heard of. And Boy State is about, you might have heard of the program, but, you know, these are not. And I think it, <laughs> I mean, they're every bit as charismatic as people you might have heard of. But I think that, uh, I don't know. So so I'm always, you know, I have to kind of look at it. And that's from my perspective as a filmmaker. It's like, yeah, Michael Jordan. I get it. I know it, but also yeah. I'm not a big, I'm not a, like a huge sports fan anymore. I, I, my sports passions peaked in 1982 and have declined. And that maybe I, I keep waiting to come back to like pro sports and find my way back in. And I actually, I don't know. So that's just my musing on that. But it does seem interesting. I agree with you. I find sports harder and harder to get into, especially as the, all I'm hearing about is, the financials more than the actual game or the narratives to get lost in. But it is intriguing that I took a, a woman to see OJ made in America who was 26. She, she didn't know who OJ Simpson was. She certainly never seen him play football, never seen him in the naked gun. Mm-hmm. Didn't know the history of Los Angeles. And she sat down and said, how long is this movie? And I said, it's, I think it's six hours. And she, she thought I was kidding. She was enwrapped in, yeah. during the entire film. And I thought, if you have the power to do that under the auspices of sports, where you can sugarcoat topics that, that a huge segment of that audience would want nothing to do with about the history of race in Los Angeles, but because mm-hmm. it's under the auspices of sports, that is interesting to me. I don't know why it, it, you can't just do it naked, but, <laughs> but when it's yeah. wearing these clothes, people are just, oh, well, it's a sports film. I'm, I'm okay with seeing that. That's not a yeah. big ask to spend six hours watching it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I think 
if you can situate those stories in, in like a political or cultural fabric that is resonant, um, that that's really interesting to me for sure. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I, and I feel like I have to, there's such a kind of gravitational pull towards crime too, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel it. Um, crime sells. Um, and, I, you know, there, I mean, I enjoy it sometimes, let's be honest, true sure. crime, the genre. But, I mean, it's also celebrity and true crime are sort of like, they're, they're like black holes. I don't know. I think you, I, I just, you, you, I think sometimes they, I feel, feel like they threaten to consume everything in, in the nonfiction space. And you have to kind of pull against that tide. And, and I think, um, for me, that's me, you know, it's not well, that you're not going to find incredible resonance in, in the right story that happens to be a true crime story or happens to be, you know, well, it's interesting. celebrity I mean, story. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, but I asked Errol Morris this for somebody who has been obsessed with murder as long as Morris has. Now the culture has yeah. caught up to him. Now murder is the most shallow form of mainstream entertainment. I said, isn't it interesting that that's true, but suicide is triple the murder rate in the United States, far more popular in terms mm-hmm. of what people are doing, mm-hmm. and yet we don't allow people to see it for fear of copycatting. Like It's so much mm-hmm. more threatening, and I don't understand where murder is totally okay and natural and good fun but yeah. suicide has never become more threatening in the discourse. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What did Errol say about that? <laughs> he said just what you did. He said, that's a good point. But I just said, you know, you know like yeah. I've, I've heard comedians go at it. Dave Chappelle went right at Anthony Bourdain and said, doesn't this guy have the best job in the world? What the fuck are we missing? Yeah. What is missing yeah. that somebody who's, Every, you know, the ultimate guy you want to be who just seems informed and brilliant and the, the, the most wonderful person to have for dinner, but also like investigating that story over the last 15 years, he was mentioning suicide all over the place with great specificity about how he was going to do it. And I thought that was really intriguing that when you get the brass ring, things can get worse than if you don't. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that cuts too close to home for people because it's really about mental health, isn't it? And that's a taboo. And that's hard. You know, why is that taboo? You know, that's and and how are we going to kind of, you know, make it more acceptable to talk about this stuff publicly? And that maybe that's a directional drift that we'll see. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I, I took up more time than I had allocated. I apologize for that, but I really appreciate your time. I'm glad to finally have the chat with you. I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time, and I didn't know that you could create something like this, but it, it was uh, an incredible experience to see your film. I'm excited to, to see far more people experience it. Thanks, Brent. I appreciate it. Really good to talk. Likewise. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor, 
is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.